Well, Hickory Bible Church, it is good to be with you guys again this year. Uh, this is a highlight of my last couple of years coming here to spend time with you, and uh, I enjoy spending time with getting to know many of you more and more, and those of you who serve at Camp Abide through the week. Um, it will be a fun week, an exhausting week, but thank you for your prayers, and pray for the, the souls of those children, that they would, some of them will hear the gospel for the first time, perhaps, so I'm excited about that. Grateful to Adam uh, for inviting me again. Um, I marvel every year that you still allow a Pittsburgh Steelers fan to be the pastor of such a sanctified church. Um, I personally, he's the only Pittsburgh fan who's a Christian that I know, and so it's, uh, it's just a marvel of God's grace, and for that I give thanks. Well, my wife and I, one of our favorite shows is Alone. How many of you have seen the show Alone? It's, it's a phenomenal show. They take 10 self-professed survival experts and take them to various parts of the world and drop them off alone in the wilderness. Each of these experts has to be a certain mile from the other so they won't interact. And the last one surviving wins something like $500,000. It's a great concept for a show. And my wife and I got hooked the first episode we watched because immediately you see these survival experts having encounters with bears, with elk, with mountain lions, and uh, we haven't lost any of them yet, but they get awful close. I remember one episode, uh, this guy was bragging beforehand and you know, what an expert he is in survival and bears don't scare him. And he found himself wandering around where they dropped him off, and he starts seeing all of these animal bones laid around the ground. And he wanders into this sort of cave, and there's these bones around. He goes, oh, I'm in a bear cave. And in that moment, he looks up, and this is the first like hour that he's there, and the mother bear is in the tree looking down at him with her cubs above him. He didn't survive more than one day. Um, so you, you can understand why my wife and I are hooked. Uh, there is one character, um, his name is Amos, uh, not Ashoff, it was another Amos, although Amos Ashoff would, would give him a run for his money, where one morning he woke up in his little, in his little um, you know, camp that he had made, and he hears some rustling outside, and he steps out, and of course they have cameras set up all around the camp. They're there alone, but they set up all these cameras, and a pack of wolves is surrounding his, his tent. And this pack had been coming in for miles, slowly circling, getting closer and closer till it was about six yards away from him. And he survives, he screams and yells and does his whole thing, but um, the terror in that moment, even as you're watching it, will he make it out alive? These survival experts dropped off in the wilderness alone, hungry, and often hunted. It's a terrifying thing to be the hunted. But this was a familiar scenario for King David. King David was well acquainted with being alone, hungry, and being hunted. In 1 Samuel 21, there's a particular instance where David is on the run. He had been growing in reputation and power after having killed Goliath, 
And King Saul was growing increasingly jealous of David. The people in Saul's nation were singing songs like, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. And King Saul is jealous of his power and reputation, and he wants David dead. Now, he tries to kill him three times. David gets away, and at this point, obviously, David isn't yet King David. He's probably around 30 years old, a relatively young man. And in 1 Samuel 21, we come into this encounter where David has just had his life tried to be taken from Saul again. It was the third time that Saul wanted to kill him. And David's on the run. He, he doesn't have time to prepare uh, food and the necessary things he would need to survive in the wilderness. Uh, he can grab a few things. He grabs a couple of his buddies, and he runs from King Saul and finds himself trekking through the wilderness with basically what he has on his back, alone, hungry, and hunted. In 1 Samuel 21, it opens with David coming to a city called Nob, and there he encounters a priest of the Lord, and David actually lies to the priest about why he's there. Obviously, he had a reputation, and the priest says, why are you here? And David says, well, King Saul has sent me on a mission, so if you could please provide me with some food. The priest does. He gives David and his men the holy bread, which would eventually get actually that priest, his men, and that city killed by King Saul for his part in helping David. Moving on from Nob, the priest offers David some protection because, again, he didn't really have weapons. And he gives David the sword that belonged to Goliath. So now David, panicking, in fear for his life, runs from Nob, and the next city he comes to is a place called Gath. Now, Gath is the hometown of Goliath. To try to put this in perspective for you here in Hickory, this would be like going to a Luke Combs concert with a Taylor Swift shirt or something. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Is that, was that accurate? I don't know if that's helpful. Was that not helpful? Okay. Um, but, it, but it's pure insanity from David to walk to the hometown of Goliath, dra dragging Goliath's sword. And so what happens is the people in Gath pretty quickly recognize David and go, hey, isn't this, isn't this David? And David overhears the chatter. He gets that sense that eyes are on him. And so they actually come and grab David and drag him before the king in Gath. And in an act of madness and panic, David feigns like he's insane. He allows spittle to start dripping down his beard and he starts scratching on the doors, acting like a madman so that the king will think, who have you brought to me? This clearly is not the great David. And David's plan works. The king looks at him and says, have I not enough madmen in my kingdom that you've brought me another? And he sends David away. So David escapes. In fact, I want to read to you uh, just a few verses from there. After hearing that they had recognized him, this is 1 Samuel 21, David was very much afraid 
in verse 12. He was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And verse 1 of chapter 22 David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Agilom. David, at this point, is a man out of control. So consumed by this fear of King Saul, now this fear of Achish, he changes his circumstances or he changes his, his, um, his face, he changes his, his behavior to, to go crazy, to feign madness, to save his life. He'll do anything to survive. Fear will do that to you, won't it? If you're afraid enough, you'll do anything to survive. And for David, it seemed to work. He escapes and he enters a cave. He's safe, kind of. Because if you keep reading, you you discover that King Saul is still after him. King Saul is still in hot pursuit of David, so he hasn't really gotten away, but for the moment, his life is spared. And in this cave of Agilom, something changes inside of David. Something happens in that cave. To turn David from this this panicking madman into a calm, peace-filled worshiper of God. In the cave, he begins to sing like we were this morning. He begins to rejoice. He goes from a madman to a churchman. He he essentially has a, a church service in this dark cave. What changed? And you say, well, it's obvious, Jeremy, what changed. He escaped with his life. But again, yeah, kind of. He actually doesn't get away from Saul pursuing him for another nine chapters. Saul is hot on his heels, and immediately he's going to have to leave this cave for another cave, and then another cave. As Saul ravages, even Nob committing genocide against the people in pursuit and blind rage against David. He's still running for his life until Saul dies in 1 Samuel 31. So he hasn't really escaped. His circumstances haven't actually changed, but he's changed. Something happened in that cave where he's gone from terror-stricken panic to calm, settled, trusting. What happened? I want to know what happened in that cave because there are experiences in my life where I am also surrounded by fearful circumstances. And as I look at David, who was in this ultimately fearful circumstance, I want to know What changed, David, from making you panicked and fear-stricken to peaceful and calm? What changed? 
Well, we know what happened in that cave because David wrote it down. And he wrote it down in Psalm 34. So if you'd like to turn to Psalm 34, um, we just sang it beautifully. David wrote a song. Now, I don't know if it had the bluegrass overtones of the song we just sang. Um, but he also wasn't from Hickory, North Carolina. But he wrote a song. And in that song, we discover the antidote to fear. We discover how David was delivered from fear. Look at the superscription, those little words before the psalm begins, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Abimelech, another name for Achish, in case you were wondering. This is the cave of Agilom where David fled after escaping from Gash. I want us to discover what changed because every single one of us in this room encounters fear and must, must overcome fear and wrestle with fear. Now, you might not be being hunted by literal wolves like Amos on a loan. You may not be being chased by a king with a spear like David. But we encounter very real and legitimate fearful circumstances in our lives. You know what they are in your life. And I want us to discover how we can be led from the panic and the fear-stricken craziness that'll drive us to the, to the brink of insanity, to a place of peace and rest. You and I need the lesson of Psalm 34, a lesson that I'm calling the fear that defeats fear. And we'll discover in this psalm that David did what we're doing this morning. He sang and he preached. This psalm is divided into two parts. We'll look at them in two parts. Part one, David sings a song. That's verses one through seven. And then part two, David preaches a sermon. Now, that might confuse you because your bulletin says David slings a sermon. And that is, again, your Pittsburgh native pastor who thought it was more clever that David would sing a song and then sling a sermon because of David's proficiency with the sling. So thank you for that, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, let, so let's look at this in two parts, and we'll look at the first part. David sings a hymn. Don't worry, it's not a Hillsong hymn. It's just um, he sings a song. And, and notice how he opens up. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in Yahweh. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, I think it's beautiful that we sung, sang Psalm 34. And as you were singing that, um, how, how exuberant was that? How full of of, of Joy and exaltation was that song. I mean, David is overflowing and bursting with rejoicing and praise. He's obviously excited. I will bless Yahweh always. His praise shall always be in my mouth. But then look at verse 3. He's, he's intent on not being the only one to sing this song. He wants you to sing it as well. And so he's pulling on you. 
We'll see that several times in this psalm, him pulling on you and me, his audience, to say, you come here and you sing this song with me. God is worthy to be praised constantly. He's eager to worship and eager for us to worship with him. I think we'd be fair to ask the question why at this point, right? I wonder if it's easier for us to sing those kinds of exuberant songs when everything's going well. There may have been some of you here this morning who struggled to sing this morning because whether this past week, month, or year, it seems like everything's collapsing in your life. And so you might look around and see the hands raised and singing the rejoicing of those, but for you it was, it's difficult to to sing that way, because if only people knew the circumstances you were in. But friend, let me just remind you, yeah, David had a little victory getting out of Gath alive, but he still got the raving lunatic madman Saul with murderous hatred in his heart pursuing him relentlessly. And yet this is the song that came out of his heart. And so I think it's fair for us to ask, why, David? Okay, you want us to praise God with you, but how can we do that? And why should we do that? And look at verse 4. He gives us the reason. I sought Yahweh, and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. I sought the Lord, he says, and he delivered me from all of my fears. David's recalling the specific events of his escape from Gath, but here's the thing. He's still in the cave. He's still being hunted. He's literally not out of the woods yet. So you would think this is a little presumptuous, David, to say what you're saying. He has no idea if the next hours will prove Saul finding him and executing him. And yet he's able to say, he delivered me from all of my fears. How can you say that, David? I don't think that's true, David. Well, he can say it because of verse 5. Look at verse 5. Those who look to him, speaking of God, are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. He can say he's been delivered from all of his fears because of verse 5, those who look to him. David's eyes shifted from looking horizontally at man and his circumstances to looking vertically to God. David looked up. And when he did, his fear changed. His fear didn't actually go away. His fear changed. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. David is still very much afraid, but it's a different fear. And the original helps us here. Um, 
Typically, it doesn't help us to maybe look at some of the original words, but here it's actually helpful because we, in our English translations, see the word fear about five or six times, but David uses two different words for fear. In verse four, it's this Hebrew word magora, which has the meaning of being afraid of something or a person stronger than you. And David's circumstances, and Saul certainly, are stronger than David. He has every right to be intimidated by the fact of where he is in life. He's out of control. He barely escaped by acting like a lunatic, but I don't think that's gonna work in the next town. So David is very much afraid of something bigger than him. But the next four uses of the word fear in this psalm is not Megorah, but Yare. Now, yare is a different word for fear. I don't want to make a bigger deal of the individual word meanings than we need to, but how David uses these words is important. There's a reason he uses a different term, because he's trying to show you this is a different fear altogether. He wants us to see the contrast between the fear. The fears of verse 4 are horizontal, fearing Saul and his circumstances. But the fear of verses seven, nine, and 11, it's a different fear. It's the fear of God. And so what happened to David? Well, he's still alone, he's still hungry, he's still the hunted, but something inside of David shifted. His eyes looked up, and the moment they did, his fear of man evaporated and in its place, the fear of God. Those who look to him, verse 5, are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Radiant, joyful, peace, shameless. Something to know about this psalm as you read through, it's often helpful when we read the Bible to look for repeated words. And if you go back and kind of absorb yourself in the context of David on the run in 1 Samuel, you, you just see, I mean, it's, it's really exciting stuff, but you just see enemy after enemy after enemy after enemy. And David is, it's like he's looking here, there's danger, so he runs here, there's danger, he runs here, there's danger. Enemy around every corner. When you read Psalm 34, one of the most repeated words in almost every verse is the name of God. Yahweh. Because David has come to a new realization of God's presence. He's looked up and he's realized that Yahweh is in control. At this point, I think it would maybe help us to think about our own fears. We're all familiar with the fear of man or fear of circumstances. You might not know what the person next to you is fearing, but you know what you fear, deep down. A lot of us do a really good job of masking it, so we don't walk around biting our nails unless it's just a bad habit. But I mean, we're not walking around necessarily you know, shaking in our shoes. But, but if, if you were to really be honest with yourself and pry and ask yourself, what am I most afraid of? It would be different for many of us. S some of you, it's the, it's the approval that you may or may not get from your peer group. 
Maybe some of you are at a precipice or a point in life where major decisions are happening, and if you don't get into that school, you see everything in your life going the wrong way. Some, some of you are afraid of the perception of others. Isn't that, a, isn't that a real fear, especially, sadly, so often in the church? How do, how do people perceive us on a Sunday morning? The fear that can cripple you and actually cause you to, yeah, sure, you don't have spittle coming down your beard and you're not scratching on a wooden door like David, but you are snapping at your kids and yelling at your wife or your husband, trying to get everyone in order so that by the time you get here, everything is perfect because you're being driven by the circumstance of everyone else's eyes. Whatever it is in your life, I mean, we could go through and just examine the hearts of everyone in this room and ask the question, what is it that I fear? And how does that fear drive me? Maybe it's the geopolitical circumstances of this world. And you just don't see how it's going to get better. And America's going down the drain. And how can we raise children in this environment when the schools teach what they do? And this fear cripples you. Friend, we all have fears, and if you think long enough on them, it can really, it can make you do some crazy things. But David is delivered from fear by fear. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Friends, this isn't a health, wealth, prosperity gospel from David. He's not saying that if you sign up for Christianity, you'll never be alone in a cave. He's writing this alone in a cave. But his message is that he was delivered from the horizontal fear of man that drove him mad to the vertical fear of God that gave him peace. Now, we see this traced out in the following chapters of 1 Samuel. Um, you'll remember this, and just we don't, we don't have to go there, but uh, th- three chapters later or so in 1 Samuel 24, there's an instance where Saul actually does find David. Well, he gets close. He comes to David's cave where he's staying. And do you remember this, where David's hiding in the shadows and Saul comes in, the text says, to relieve himself, and he's there just feet from David. And David goes up to him and cuts a piece of his garment. Now, what's fascinating about that is here his great enemy is just feet away, execution imminent, and David cuts a piece of Saul's garment, and what immediately happens in David's heart? He's convicted. He's convicted by God. Touch not the Lord's anointed. Which shows you something. David has been radically delivered from this this obsessive fear of his circumstances to being only and almost exclusively aware of God's presence in his life. He's more aware of God in that cave than he is of Saul in that cave. Because the moment he cuts his garment, he thinks, I shouldn't have done that. And he actually goes out to Saul and tells him, I mean, you just see this remarkable transformation take place in David because he looked up. And now, thankfully for you and me, David turns this song, the first seven verses, into a sermon. Um, Because, again, like I said, he's really concerned about us in this situation. Um, He he sings, sorry, (laughs) David slings a sermon because uh, he, he wants us to get this as well. 
He, he cares about the deliverance of God's people. And so for the rest of the, the verses, 8 through um, the end of the psalm in verse 22, we see David slings a sermon. Uh, and he has three points in this sermon, or three rocks. I'm not going to stop, because it's, it's really appealed to the dad jokes in me, and I, I need to stop. So he has three points, and they're this, taste, fear, and trust. Taste, fear, and trust. So first, David tells us to taste in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I like this as a preacher because this feels like that sort of imploring or begging that a preacher does. Oh, taste. Come experience this. He's not presenting to us some cold, dry, academic facts. He's looking at us and saying, come, please come and taste this goodness. Absorb the goodness of God. Blessed is the man. Blessed, that means happy, literally happy. And if you, you're going through the Psalms this summer, I'm, a, I'm sure you'll at some point get to Psalm 1. There's, maybe you started with Psalm 1. Uh, blessed is the man. Happy is the man. You realize that the Psalms are written to give us a guide to the happy life. And that's not a bad thing. I think sometimes we can feel guilty in the church. Oh, we shouldn't be pursuing happiness. We, we want to pursue the glory of God. Well, I think it's right that God has actually made us to glorify him as we enjoy him. Happy is the man who pursues the Lord. Happy is the man who tastes the goodness of God. And notice this. Look again at verse 8. Oh, taste and see the, the Lord is good. Happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Refuge in God. Now, David is physically taking refuge in a cave. But he says, actually, my refuge is in God because this cave is not ultimately going to save me. In fact, it's just moments later in 1 Samuel 22 where he has to leave that cave. And this becomes very true for us, friends. Blessed is the man, happy is the man who finds his refuge not in a cave or a 401k, but in God. But we're so quick to run to those caves, aren't we? Oh, if only I can figure out this situation in my life, then I'll be happy. If only I put away this much for retirement, now I can rest. Now I'm happy. Now I have refuge. If only she likes me back, then I'll be happy. If only he would give me the the acknowledgement that I want. If only they would see me how I want them to see me. Then I'll be happy. We're constantly running from our fears into these caves. And not all of them are necessarily bad caves. But friend, that's not where your refuge is ultimately found. And that is not where, it cannot be where you find your ultimate peace. He says, blessed is the man, happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Um, some of you may have heard of the, the siege of Masada. When Rome in the first century assaulted Jerusalem, there were 967 Jewish rebels 
who found refuge in what's called Masada. It was this high point. It was a, a, basically a, a, a refuge point or a castle. This, this, um, uh, it's, it's on this basically impossible to climb hill there outside Jerusalem. And 967 rebels camped out there and fought against nearly 10,000 Roman soldiers for four to six months and held them at bay. One of the most remarkable um, accomplishments of any military. I mean, we read about it and, and hear about it today. It took the Romans with thousands, nearly half a year, to, to siege Masada. And yet, Masada still fell. Ultimately, all of the refuges in this life will fall and fail. But God will never. And David says, happy if you find your refuge in him. And then in verse 9, he tells us to taste. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, to fear. So he's told us to taste. Now he tells us, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Even the young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek Yahweh, those who seek the Lord, shall never hunger. It's interesting in verse 10, you see a synonym for fear. Fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord have no lack. Fear, to fear God, is to seek God. It's to look to God. And now David, like a father with a little child, takes us by the hand to show us what this means. David's very pastoral here. He wants us to experience what he's experienced, and so he shows us, he's going to walk us through what it means to fear God, to seek him, because we need to learn this fear. There are so many facets of the fear of God. There's certainly terror. As you look upon this great, majestic, sovereign God, who at this very moment is upholding the universe by the word of his power, there must be a sense of terror. He is holy and he is sovereign, and we as sinners deserve his wrath. But the fear of God also includes a reverence, a worshipful admiration that leads to, and this is key for what David teaches us, that leads to obedience, which is why David begins his lesson on fear with a question in verse 12. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Now, if I were to ask you, who here desires to live many days and have a good life, I'd expect everyone's hand would go up. I, I want that, David. And he says, okay, well then let me tell you how to have that life. And the lesson he teaches us is a lesson on obedience. Obey God in, in every way. He talks about, well, look at verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking to see, your lips and your, your tongue. What's revealed in your heart is, it comes out in your words. So pursue purity in your heart, David is telling us. Verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Um, walk in the path of wisdom. He's calling us to, to run away from evil and to pursue purity and holiness. And, and so how does this relate to fear, well, the knowledge of God's terrifying power and all-consuming holiness combined with our experience of his grace and mercy ought to lead us to an obedient life, 
a life of following the God of the universe with a reverent joy. This is Matthew chapter 10, isn't it? Do not fear those who can only take your body, only kill your body, but fear him who can cast your body and your soul into hell. This is the end of Ecclesiastes 12. When all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. What David is showing us is that the key to this life of seeking God and and tasting of his goodness is to have this reverential awe of God that drives us to obey God, to, to love God and live for God, to get our eyes off of people and circumstances as our primary concern and to live your life knowing God. This is all of wisdom literature, actually, If you understand Ecclesiastes or the book of Proverbs or the book of James, what it's teaching us is that there's two kinds of wisdom in this world. There's a worldly wisdom and there's a divine wisdom. And the worldly wisdom has a lot of good to say. It'll teach you how to save up your money and be responsible. And there's good things there, but it's missing something. And what it's missing is the divine component that there is a God in heaven to whom you will give an account for your life. And so wisdom literature and scripture always brings in the reality of God's existence and his lordship over you, and it calls you to fear him in worship-filled reverential awe and obedience. David tells us to taste, and to taste by fearing God, seeing him for who he is. It's really simple, actually. Opening the word and discovering God for who he is and allowing that reality to pierce your heart, to understand just who this great God is and to bow to him in reverence. And notice David then tells us in verse 15, the final point of his sermon, David tells us to trust. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of Yahweh is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But notice what he said. David's just turned his eyes upward, and what we realize is that God is now looking at David. Your eyes on him, his eyes on you. He's turned toward you, though he turns against those who do evil. You have, Christian, an audience with God. I think that's something David realized is this God who is in control of the universe, I have an audience with this God. Verse 16 tells us that he is an avenger and a protector. Verse 17, oh, this is such a helpful verse. When the righteous cry for help, Yahweh hears them. You realize what he's saying is that the Lord hears, he cares about your emotional battles. He cares when you cry to him, which means this great, powerful, terrifying God is intimately acquainted with your daily struggles, and you've got an audience with him. Verse 18, Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. He is near you. Even while your enemies draw closer, are you crushed? Well, he he comes close to you. Are you devastated this morning? Then you have Yahweh, the God of the universe, near to you. 
Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. This is a guarantee from David. Now, notice the repetition. He says the names for God, deliverer times four, savior times two, redeemer in verse 22. He redeems those who trust him. He delivers them. He saves them. One man said it really well. The single qualification for being eligible for God's help is that we be in trouble. Those who are poor, crushed in spirit, devastated, he cares for them. So Christian, trust him. Trust him. Have faith in this deliverer. Now, you want proof? Of course you do. David is here giving himself as proof. Hey, trust me. I was in that cave and he delivered me. But maybe that's not enough for you looking at David. And I'd say, good, it shouldn't be enough for you. David didn't mean it to be enough for you. Here's here's what I mean. Look at verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Does that sound familiar? John chapter 19. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture, they will look on him whom they have pierced. David is not the ultimate proof that you and I will be delivered from all of our fears. Jesus Christ is the ultimate proof because Christ faced every fear that you and I could ever possibly face and to a greater degree. Do you fear shame? Do you fear shame for your stance as a Christian in this post-Christian world? Jesus was shamed, stripped naked, mocked, and spit upon. And yet, like verse 5 says, his face shone radiant. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. My friend, do you fear rejection from loved ones? Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And though rejected by this world, even by his beloved disciples, he was never rejected by his father. Do you fear oppression Violence, danger. He was beaten, bloodied, bludgeoned, nailed to a tree. The unthinkable agonies of Calvary. And he walked through his entire life on this earth knowing that would be his end. My friends, Jesus suffered. 
more than any of us in this room ever will. And yet Jesus was delivered from the enslaving fear of man and ultimately from death itself because he did not stay on that cross. He did not stay in that tomb. He rose from the grave. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because, in Acts 2, 24, we're told, it was not possible for him to be held by it. My friends, he defeated death itself. And so the confidence of David to praise God for delivering him from fear to fear is ultimately grounded in the reality that he would not let his righteous one, the ultimate righteous one, be abandoned. Because God the Father delivered Jesus Christ, he will deliver you. It may not be from the cave immediately. You know, what if David hadn't gotten out? What if he had penned Psalm 34 and the next day Saul found him and slit his throat? Would it not be true? Would the psalm not apply? Would, would that cancel the reality of God's deliverance? No, no, my friends, because David was delivered from fear because he looked up and saw the one who holds him in his hands and knew that whatever fate meets him in this world, it is under the sovereign, divine will of the one in whom he trusts. Because Jesus lives, you can cancel your fear. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. You will be delivered. The confidence of Psalm 34 is yours as you realize that at this moment, Jesus Christ is alive, interceding on your behalf in heaven. And so friends, I, I want you this morning to think about the fears in your life. The fears that have gripped you, the fears that have maybe led you to making poor decisions. Are you being driven by fear this morning? Turn your eyes away from your circumstances and look up to the one who holds you in his hands. The one who delivered his son and therefore guarantees that all those who trust in my son will also be delivered. That was David's hope. May it be ours as well. Father, help us to know this fear that delivers us. Lord, the circumstances of this life are Father, they're, they're real. They're terrifying. We live in a fallen and a broken world, the God of this world ravaging mankind, knowing his time is short. Father, we do not look at the circumstances around us and belittle them. They are real and they're terrifying. But God, we know that you are a God who is sovereign and in control. And Father, as we look to you, Help us, Lord, to fear you and you alone and not what is around us. That we would be delivered from the fear of man that cripples. 
that we would be rescued to see that you are the one who, because you delivered Christ, you will also deliver us. If there are any in this room, Lord, who do not yet know that fear, I pray you'd wake them up to fear the one thing they should fear, a holy and righteous God who is a savior and a judge. May they come to know you, to love you, to be rescued by you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.